My name is W.D. Richter. Um, I'm sitting here today getting ready to look at the movie for the first time in probably five or six years because I was selected uh, in 1983 by the Banzai Institute to uh, direct the documentary, the docudrama, we call it, based on the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, I'm not here alone. I have with me from the Banzai Institute, uh, Reno of Memphis, who uh, penned the novelization, which really wasn't a novelization. It was a novel that existed before the movie but was withheld from me until after the film. Uh, Reno, I don't know if you want to say anything about why you're here, but there you are. I'm hanging with uh, Rick this morning. and uh, just got into town uh, last night. and uh, I'm bringing, you know... Um, um, word from Buckaroo that um, he's really uh, looking forward to the new DVD and um, he's he's happy about it, you know, the man is happy I saw I saw him yesterday and he was really, really, really thrilled This is this became necessary because we just didn't think we could get the movie off on the right foot if we didn't have something concise that just pinned him at least as much as you can pin Buckaroo yeah, there's so much. I mean, so much. Where do you, where do you begin? The first day of photography. That's where you begin, and you're scared. Even the title uh, is problematic. Uh, the Adventures of Buck Rubanzai was uh, was forced on us by the studio. It was going to be Buck Rubanzai, uh, but they said, "Well, that's just too strange a combination of words. We have to uh, do something else and stick some words on the top and on the bottom." And uh, yeah, you fight the big battles to win, and you let the little ones go, and everybody calls it Buckaroo Banzai. Here come the memories, you know. Uh, this is the uh, the blockhouse. See, that big slit was designed for Jordan Cronenworth to just give us a shaft of hot white light uh, that people could move in and out of. And then Fred Konenkamp, a really nice man, but a different kind of cinematographer, has lighted the inside here, and you're not really even aware that that hot window is there to uh, sort of set the stage. Um, and here comes the the jet car. Now that's that's a real thing there. You're looking at it's built by Thrust Racing and Jerry Siegel, and those are real jet engines. Those aren't digital effects. We didn't have them. When they fire, they fire. This is my boy, Pepe. Yeah, there you're looking at the fictional Reno of Memphis, sitting there talking to Perfect Tommy, Lewis Smith. Yeah, I have the curve. Oh, here's the famous uh, underlit, uh, really neat-looking operating room scene. Um, that's a real neurosurgeon right there, just sort of playing an anesthesiologist so that he could uh, tell us this. He's a friend of Buckaroo's, and he, you know, he's there for a reason. We didn't, we didn't have any sloppy technical stuff. You know, a reference to a curved Yastergill or a straight Yastergill. That's the real thing. At this point, I was ready to say, that's it. Let's get out. See, you can check your anatomy all you want. And even though there may be normal variation, when you get right down to it this far inside the head, it all looks the same. No, 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 no. Don't tug on that. You never know what it might be attached to. That's the first laugh in the movie. My crew's always laughing about that. He, li he likes that? Yeah, he likes that line. Oh, that's, that's great. Banzai is using a laser to vaporize a pineal tumor without damaging the quadrigeminal plate. Subcutaneous... Here's a, here's a wonderful actor uh, bringing rawhide to life, even if rawhide is nothing like that. You know, Reno would know more than I, but uh, it's Clancy Brown. And uh, he's just, he's the heart and soul of this Hong Kong Cavalier group. 
You ever thought about joining me full time? What do you mean? You serious? Do you have an opening? Uh huh. Can you sing? A little. Yeah, I can dance. I see that's, we have wonderful actors here. They got into the spirit of it, came aboard really enthusiastically. Uh, they're almost first choices across the board. And, you know, you can't do it without people like that, just like Buckaroo can't. So there's some analogy you could draw here to Team Banzai in the real world and Team Banzai making this movie. Uh, I needed all these people to pull this off. You know, we pretty much got our first choices in, in one incredible week. Uh, we were ready to say that if Lithgow said no to, Liz to uh, play Lazardo, we'd go to Chris Lloyd, uh, who would have done a wonderful job too, but Lithgow said yes. So we pretty much filled the roster with people we uh, heard would satisfy the Institute and certainly satisfied us, because this is a, a, just a great collection. This is control. Driver's door check secure. Control, this is HB-88. Commander's voice check, over. Roger, HB-88, read you 10-2. Sorry, Now you're looking at the oscillation overthruster, and uh, I've been asked to, to sort of explain what the science of that is. I can't, in my own words, so I'm going to read from the novel here, um, that the, the um, this is actually directly from the book, 100 yards away, members of the Bonsai team filled the tank of the unusual-looking asymmetrical car with extremely flammable jet fuel, while others, almost unnoticed, loaded aboard three special liquid helium doers for supercooling the magnetic components of the jet car. These superconducting magnets were essential for the operation of the oscillation overthruster. The book goes on to say that the oscillation overthruster is a miniature colliding beam accelerator which created intermediate vector bosons from the annihilation of electrons and their antimatter counterpart positrons. That puts it as well as I could ever myself. Uh, obviously, we cannot give away every nuance of the technology, but that's the basic, um, it's the basic movie uh, gibberish, you know? Oh, that's nice to know. Thank you. You know, this was um, a tricky movie to shoot. You, you, nobody ever has enough time and enough money to do that, but we truly didn't because, uh, well, it was made independently. We were sort of out there on a shoestring dealing with a lot of special effects and vehicles and a large cast, and uh, the very, I think the second day of photography, we're out in the desert, and it was wickedly hot, and the uh, studio was on our back for... Uh, script changes that we'd made during rehearsal that were really inconsequential. So the whole process was exhausting. It's why I didn't direct another film for many, many years and why I haven't directed one since then. I'm, I find it harder sometimes than I think it's worth. Uh, we didn't, I don't know how many days we shot. I, I forget that stuff almost immediately because uh, you're just so happy to be out of it. Even though you like what you did, your memory of it is, uh, I don't know how we did it.
every shot has to be planned in a thing like this. Um, initially, we had a much more elaborate storyboard sequence because Mac Rausch wrote a sequence that uh, involved the jet cars having to do battle with uh, other vehicles, ironically, very much like the uh, Foundation imaging trailer you saw when the aliens were chasing it, but it just was impossible for us to shoot it. So we stripped it clean, storyboarded it this way. You have to work very closely with all these people, especially if you're directing this kind of stuff for the first time. So some of, actually, some of the stuff is sort of um, going to be a mystery to me until I see the, the effects coming in. Uh, now, here's Professor Akita and Perfect Tommy, who really is the, the design genius of the jet car. Uh, Professor Akita is the fellow who you saw in the home movie opening sequence who saved Buckaroo as a little boy. And they are right now throwing that oscillation over thruster into I mean, operation. I mean, there's still nobody in the world that can do this. There's nobody there's, that... There's 20 years, and there's still nobody that can go through solid matter yet. Yeah. Except the one man. Yeah, one man. Uh, I have, actually, uh, the rock that Buckaroo brought out of this mountain from the eighth dimension, and uh, I, I, I'll show it uh, to you when, uh, I guess I'm going to do an on-camera interview at some point. Uh, uh, it was given to me, I was led to believe by Buckaroo, but it was handed through so many different channels. Uh, but I've looked at it, it is the prop. I don't know if it's the real thing because I don't know where the prop came from, which is on the set one day. One, we got his tracks, they go right up to a wall of rock. Holy shit! Oh, the interior of the vehicle is definitely on a, on a soundstage to control the smoke and uh, stuntmen falling off the jet car. And, you know, here you come back to Peter. This is really the first time you see him without a helmet, without a surgical bubble around his head. It's kind of his introduction, Peter Weller's introduction. Yeah, he's, he's a good-looking guy. Does he look anything like Buckaroo Banzai? Uh, well, you know, around the, 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 the hair. The hair is you know, similar. You know? And it was, I wouldn't say he looked you know, in the eyes. Yeah. Buckaroo's got eyes, you know, emerald, emerald, strange eyes. Hmm. 
we talked about a variety of people. We wanted a relative unknown to the audience because we wanted to have them meet Buckaroo Banzai rather than an actor, you know, brought a little baggage with him. And um, my wife and I went to New York and met him and um, had a drink with him and liked what we saw and told Buckaroo he wanted to do it and word came back that he could. Now, here we are with Dr. Emilio Lizardo, uh, inhabited by Lord John Wharf and uh, Lithgow did an amazing job. I have no idea whatsoever where he got all this stuff, but uh, he got an Italian voice coach on the lot, turned out to be a tailor who uh, had a wonderful Italian accent, and John had had him fit him for some wardrobes in the past and said, I'm getting my accent, I'll I'll unveil it when I have it. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on in this scene, Uh, a lot of wonderful little props. There's a chart on the wall to your left now. Uh, Lazardo could see it if he looked straight up. That's sort of a hierarchical uh, description of his men on this planet. Uh, You know, you look somewhere else every time in these scenes because we had everybody on the set, and I mean everybody, uh, throwing ideas out. It's like there's a Last Supper there on the wall. Um, I guess that's a reference to Lazardo's Catholicism because uh, awful lot of Catholics. Looks like some electroids in in the picture. In In the Last Supper? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Well, now we're sliding back to the past, 1930-something, I think, although, you know, uh, sort of futuristic, Frankenstein-like. I think, actually, some of those props are in Frankenstein. We we got them out of um, storage, and Mike Riva, a really, really great production designer, just slammed everything together to uh, make this happen. That is a real beam of light out there, because when Hakita ducks under it, it's there on the set. you, if you look at some of the, uh, there, there you go, probably his mother, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a classical painting. I can't remember those little things. I, uh, I the set was packed with wonderful details. This is an industrial facility somewhere in Los Angeles that had been um, shut down. It was a big empty void when we took it over for a short period of time, filled it up with this stuff. Way in the background, uh, futurism, some huge canvases with um, kind of Italian. The language is English, but it feels like that European futurism. Just details that I say, oh, if I could get it better on the screen, wouldn't it be great? But you can't get everything. Now, this this is happening when? This is 19... In the 30s, Yeah, <clears throat> I think it was in 1938 that the uh, Orson Welles War of the World hoax was perpetrated, and um, this mm. moment, it, it, must, it must predate it slightly because Lazardo himself uh, is, only Lazardo himself is infested here or infected or whatever the term would be with Lord John Warfen, who's come out of the eighth dimension because Lazardo got half in and half out, and Warfen was in there in a kind of uh, interdimensional prison. It's after this that Lazardo uh, was able to figure out how to free his cohorts, and that was the big exodus that would have been noticed by people in the area if they hadn't all come under the mass delusion that um, they were imagining uh, an invasion from outer space from Mars because of the Orson Welles radio program. So, uh, you know, there is talk that um, Warfin coerced Orson Welles into doing that at that moment. Yeah, it's all before my time. I count my board and I can... Uh, never mind. Jesus Christ, make the ganglia twitch! 
We're home free. Home. Home is where you wear your hat. I feel so break up. I want to go home. Hello, Doc. Who are we today, Albert Einstein? Lord John Walker. If there's one thing I hate, it's to be mistaken for somebody else. Yeah, well, cheer up, Lazard. Oh, it's Friday, and I'll care package from your yo-yo friend. Hey, signores. Grazie, Doc. Thanks, Doc. I come for your TV. You've been using too much juice. Another 10,000 kilowatts again this month. Beats me how an old homicidal loony can use that much power. Go on, take it. I don't need it. Tomorrow, I'm going home with my overthruster. It's <laughs> terrific, Doc. I'll make sure you get an early wake-up call. Laugh for a while you can, monkey boy. Bakaru, I've done a spectrographic analysis on the specimen you pulled off the jet car drive shaft. Uh, Rawhead, you're keen on bugs. What do you think? I don't care if you walk through a mountain in Texas. This is New Jersey, and when you play my when you play my joint, you're just another act. This is the other side of Bakaru. This odd little bar band, uh, a world famous guy who might well be able to pack theaters, just sort of slips in and out of uh, clubs and. Uh, you know, sometimes people know he's going to be there, sometimes they don't. And I know what you mean, uh, Reno, about his being everyman, because, uh, look, people appreciate him, but they don't claw at him. They don't treat him like an idol. He's just going to play some good music. Uh, we, we tried to get that part of it and um, surround him with real musicians as well as actors. You're seeing Billy, Billy Vera up there, Billy and the Beaters, two of his guys. Yeah, I know Billy. Billy's good. <laughs> Billy's great. I watch Billy a lot. Peter is playing the guitar and Peter's playing the little pocket trumpet, but there's no rehearsal time. There's no way they can become a group just because it wasn't a band. I mean, there was no way these guys could sound like a band. They were just, uh, I mean, Clancy's playing the piano. Yeah, this is the one question I'm, I'm Buckroos asked me, he says, uh, you know, Peter, uh, Peter can sing, you know, but how come, uh, you know, in this scene, uh, Peter, uh, he's sitting down at the, at the piano and he starts to sing and it's, um, he's not, uh, and I'm thinking the, the, the reason, I'm not, I'm not the movie maker, but I'm asking you, I mean, is the reason that Peter's vocal, it's a little bit off, is he's thinking, he's thinking hard about, you know, what's happening. What do you mean off? Well, in, in, I'll show you. Okay. Well, we get there in a minute. This yeah. is uh, this is the introduction of a very important person in Buckaroo's life, uh, Penny Pretty. Uh, the, the thread. Yeah, yeah. It's all the emotions happening in this in this moment. I'm thinking it throws it throws Buckaroo a little bit when he when he sits down. Again, a, a really fine actress, Ellen Barkin, who's able to get a wonderful blend of humor and, and kind of sweet tragedy into this. She is hot. Yeah, she is hot, and uh, so is her pink dress. See that when she stands up. Yeah, I'm on a 
What's your name? Who cares? Well, I care. What's your name? I had gotten uh, Jordan Cronenweth, the guy who shot Blade Runner. I thought that was a pretty wonderful fellow to have by your side. He was, um, you know, instrumental in giving us this look. If you can hold in your head the image of the blockhouse and sort of transpose that kind of lighting into this scene, uh, you wouldn't have half of what we have here. At one point, when she takes a swig of that, this incredible string of spittle came out of her mouth, and the thing is backlighted, man, and you can't do that with uh, front light. There are uh, fluorescent fixtures lying on the floor in places that just give kicks of blue and yellow. Uh, it's a real sneaky way this movie was going to be lighted. Don't be mean. We don't have to be mean. Because, remember, no matter where you go, there you are. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything about that line. It's just, it needs to be just uh, well, floating out there as far as I'm concerned. I have to ask him. I was going to have to ask about that line. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about here. When uh, you know the, the man's got a pretty good, pretty good voice. Oh, uh, but I, I think right now he's so over overwhelmed, you know, with uh, the emotion. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble or give away. Ooh, there went the spittle. Well, again, Cronin with light here. Watch what uh, Reno's talking about. I mean, he's not, he's not like sliding with the note, you know, it's he's, he's not his usual. Yeah. I, I heard him sing, sing better, you know. He's yeah. Not... Well, you you heard him when we were um, rehearsing the stuff in, in a less threatening environment. I mean, Peter, as much as he's a performer, doesn't normally perform live, and you've got mm -hmm. a, an audience there, and uh, some of it's looped, I'll just say it. What the heck? But it's not looped with another actor. It's Peter mm -hmm. Weller's voice. We went into a recording studio, and got him to do it a few times so we're getting the best of Peter but what you're picking up on uh, is a slight out of sync I guess I'd have to say I think this scene gets closer to uh, that nervous edge that I imagine the real events had. Yeah, it feels, has a real good feel. Where do you think you're going, Dr. Moon? Why, pray tell? Doc, put down the phone. Operator, I want to make a call to Mr. John Big Booty at a Yoyodyne Propulsions Systems over in Grover's Mill. And you tell him. And it's John Warfin calling. That's W-H-O-R-F-I-N. You got that, honey? John, J-O-H-N. This better be collect, Doc. <laughs> you know, this is a tricky thing. I don't even fully understand it myself exactly because you could say that all the other electroids take over human bodies. He was deranged. He was deranged because he's the only electroid who basically took over a human body uh, but they don't take over powerful figures. Uh, I have to assume they just took over average sort of aerospace workers, whereas Lord Warfin has got himself inside the mind of a first-class physicist who was probably a wildly eccentric character himself. You saw him uh, charge at that wall in the, in the 38th sequence, and they're at war. I, I think you're seeing kind of a personality created by two strong individuals uh, so that uh, 
It's not quite like Dr. Strangelove, you know, um, but there's something happening underneath this that makes it ludicrous and scary at the same time. Because uh, in the history book, I mean, the mammals are like uh, Einstein, and uh, the man was so valuable, I guess the Allied war effort had to put him away. I mean, he, the man knows too much, you know. You're talking about Emilio Lazaro. Yeah, the man was like a, up there with Einstein. Yeah. Um, and his future, you know, was, was, limit, was limitless, but um, if the accident had not happened. Yeah. Now we're in the bus. Um, this is Buckaroo's touring bus, but it's also his sort of rolling, uh, you know, kind of, I guess you'd call it a nerve center. These guys are at home on this bus like they're at home in, at the Institute itself. It's got a, oh, we're in Buckaroo's room now. And I, I you know, studied that whatever information we've been given about the way Buckaroo lives, it seems like this is kind of close. Feel free to uh, contradict that, Reno, if you want to. I don't know. No, I'm not here. I'm, I'm here to enjoy. You know, I'm, I'm not going to pick it apart. I mean, I like it, and it's a, it's a good piece of entertainment. Ten minutes later, he cops a Maserati Bora, totaled it a block away. Holy moly. Maserati Bora. Mm-hmm. That ain't all. He's vanished. Thin air. Dr. Lazardo. Wasn't he on TV once? You're thinking of Mr. Wizard. This guy's a top scientist, <laughs> Dunkoff. So was Mr. Wizard. Yeah, the Institute has uh, vehicles in various parts of the country, so if you need to, uh, to uh, you know, use whatever, it's, it's there, you know. You get, a, you get a feeling there's a fleet out there, and I don't know if I'm seeing the same bus. Here, here we are. This is World Watch 1. I don't know that the bus has a name. I was never told it had, but it was made real clear to us that uh, World Watch 1 was a uh, was a key part of the bus, and then we put some energy into designing it correctly. We shot this movie uh, out of sequence. Obviously, they were certainly not the luxury to do it chronologically. Uh, and you can see there's so many places we have to jump around that uh, my recollection was that we were uh, behind schedule every morning I woke up and uh, somehow got to the end of the day and kept going uh, but there's a there's an urgency behind the scenes that doesn't these actors don't show that they have a wonderful easy manner Jeff Goldblum's uh, just nails his character for me uh, it's a difficult role you know I mean he's potentially a buffoon but Jeff gives him enough dignity to uh, to rescue him from the wardrobe that we hung all over him there I mean I got your message about rendezvousing at this address barely had time to pack my saddlebags then I came here and I could see that well, I'm going to snoop around, make yourself at home. Okay. The thing with, uh, with uh, Goldblum, he, he, like, he's, he's like every man. You know, like every man has the fantasy of being a cowboy. Well, you know, I just, I just noticed something that uh, Pepe Serna playing you is wearing two belts, and so are you right now. We got a couple of things. I, I talked to Pepe once, you know, and I said, Pepe, you know, you know we, we have our little, our little chat. Where are your spurs at? <laughs> What's he making fun of me? Penny doesn't know she had a twin sister, and she certainly doesn't know that Buckaroo married her. That was Peggy Pretty. Uh, I've always took it that she just liked rock and roll, and she was sitting there down on her luck in a, in a rock and roll club, getting drunk and putting herself out of her misery when circumstances sort of just overwhelmed her, and she encountered 
her dead sister's husband. Yeah, some kind of fate, you know, some kind of fate bringing her. Yeah. You. This movie uh, exists because uh, David Beagleman took a chance on us. Uh, he, he saw a very strange screenplay and a first-time director, and he said, uh, I think you have something special here. Uh, you can actually go make this movie. I thought that he saw the same special thing that I did. I have come to realize he saw much more of a straight-ahead movie, more of just a, an action-adventure film with some typical heroes in it. That said, uh, some forces in him or out there said, uh, let these guys go. Let this story be told. So um, David Beagleman is a very complicated, was a very complicated man. Um, he sort of fits in Buckaroo's world in a, in a twisted way. No, I'm from Laramie, except that I was born in Cody, but nobody... Yeah. Lewis Smith... Uh, is a really interesting actor. He, he kind of doesn't want to be an actor. He doesn't act much now anymore. He runs, I think, a, a motel that his dad left him. Not a small one. It's a big one. I've lost touch with Lewis, but I think he's doing that. He's uh, dark-haired, and uh, we had cast a bunch of guys already when Lewis came in, and they were all dark-haired. And uh, my wife was sitting in on some of the casting sessions and just said, would you dye your hair blonde? And Lewis sort of locked eyes with her and said, sure, and uh, went for it. By the end of the film, his hair was falling out because it's a wicked thing to strip all that color out, and he was a really good sport. He's a wonderful guy. I'd like to uh, move this thing uh, along. Perhaps some of you noticed we have a motorcycle convention rolling in here. We're a little short of time. Besides, I don't imagine you came here to listen to me talk. Now we're at the uh, press conference. Uh, you know, our conceit here is that uh, while this is an extraordinarily important... There are the red glasses. Uh, an extraordinarily important moment um, that there's just something wacky about Buckaroo's world that he would say, well, I'm going to make this announcement in this hotel and to get it over with because we're in this area right now. And they said, well, you know, you got to get out of there. There's a, mo a motorcycle convention coming in. That's okay with him. He'll get the job done, and the motorcycles will be sitting on that same stage in an hour. The guy has a certain... He just lacks a sense of self-importance. Now, that's a Soviet satellite. That's an actual copy of a Soviet satellite going behind the red electroid mothership now. Uh, this design is all based mostly on undersea life, coral, urchins, things like that. And then um, the exterior is extrapolated into this sort of uh, spray foam stuff going on on the walls and uh, kind of a warrior culture where uh, rank or even individual taste can be expressed with feathers and uh, different jackets. Uh, they're, they're people in a way. I mean, here we go. I think this is from the eighth dimension, and I think Buckaroo wanted it on the set, and uh, I, I took it when, I, when it was given to me to say, yeah, okay. Yeah, you said this actually, this rock actually is, is the eighth, from the eighth dimension. Yeah, a lot of the stuff with the, with the electrodes you're talking about, that, that's, that's true. Yeah. That's classified stuff. We at the Banzai Institute have at last found that way. We have created a device well, I have to take, I have to assume stuff like the following. She is Penny Pretty. She's a pretty. She is Peggy's twin sister. 
I think one of the reasons that Buckaroo liked Peggy was she's an extraordinarily bright person as well as a beautiful person. And Penny, who has no self-respect at all, is obviously extremely well-read, actually understands what she's read. And it's a classic case of a person with a low self-esteem, Buckaroo already bringing out of her, um, you know, it's one of his gifts. He finds people down on their luck and sees their strengths and encourages them to uh, bring those things forward. And so that's going on in this scene, independent of all this other stuff. But let me try to explain this red glasses thing. I had a, um, a fellow on the set who was put there by Beagleman to make sure we were behaving, staying on schedule, essentially shooting the script. But when uh, he, when Beagleman saw the red glasses on Buckaroo, he uh, called me into the office and said, uh, you've used them, took me off the set and said, you've used red glasses on Buckaroo. Heroes don't wear red glasses. And I said, well, I mean, I'm not going to debate that with you, but don't worry. He doesn't wear them the whole movie. He wears them only three times. And later on, when we put him on the third time, they this was the case where it was put on the third time. Even though it's not the third time he's wearing them in the movie since we shot it out of sequence, Beagleman shut the film down and said to me, uh, I, I literally am, I'm, I will cancel this movie if you're going to continue to defy me that way. And I said, I haven't. This is the third time. And he said, I told you only twice. Fortunately, Sidney Beckerman, who was Beagleman's friend, was in the room. He's the producer of the movie. And he said, uh, the only time you really came to my aid, he said, David, I was here, you said three. And Beagleman, in one of those rare moments where uh, a contemporary told him he was wrong, sort of actually was taken aback, uh, admitted he probably had forgotten, and looked at me and then and said, I mean three. You put it on one more time and I'll shut the movie down. And he wasn't kidding. Ed, go back to the bus and uh, reroute this call to the president's private suite of Walter Reed Hospital. When, when this film first came out, it was presented as a piece of fiction, um, just a pure Hollywood entertainment. And um, I thought that's how it was going to spend its life. I'm, I was kind of surprised when uh, rumors started circulating that it was a docudrama, that there was a real story behind all this. And uh, I guess I was... I was initially uh, frustrated by that because it looks like we uh, didn't have the book. People have said, why is the book so rich? Why is the movie moving on a different level? And, um, well, the truth is that we didn't have the book because uh, it's kind of an interesting legal problem. When, uh, when Buckaroo gave us permission to do this, I don't think he ever envisioned Reno's book being published. But... Um, it, it came about that in signing a deal to write the script, Mac Roush had an obligation to write a novelization. When Buckaroo realized that, he knew there was going to be a book out. And uh, for reasons only he understands, he decided it should be Reno's account rather than Mac Roush's. And so he gave, as Mac tells me, uh, he gave Reno permission to slip the book to Mac. And there's some, I don't know if it's a hybrid or I don't know if every word is Reno's, but uh, the book is closer to the drama, or the docudrama, than the movie. Well, in a book, you know, you can get into, you know, get into the minds and the characters a little more, you know. But I know, I mean, when Roush was writing the script, I mean, I'm not looking at it every day, but I mean, you know, occasionally a question would come my way and I'd help, you know, try to do, try to answer the question. But, um, you know, and to a certain extent, I, I think um, Buckaroo did not want to, you know, check for accuracy everything in the movie. It's not about that. Like I said to you, if he wanted to put 
Um, his imprimatur on a movie, he could make 20 movies. But he liked the humor, he liked the kind of what we were trying, you know, you guys were up to, you know, whatever it was you were doing, whatever vibe you were on. Uh, whatever it was you were tripping on, he liked it, he, he could relate to it. He loves Dr. Strangelove, one of his favorite movies. Mm. And when he picked up on the kind of quirkiness of it, I think that's really what he liked, you know. He's, he's just a guy that, uh, he's brilliant, you know, he's a brilliant guy. And he's got an inner security that doesn't make him want to micromanage you, you know. So he says, go do this, and he really means go do it. Uh, I, I mean, think probably, I was assumed he was kind of mildly curious yeah. about what we do. Just uh, Why does he want to go see a movie about what he did? I mean, about yeah. every little thing is accurate. I mean, the man did it, you know, what's he want to see it again for? He doesn't need to hype. He doesn't need to, as I said before, he doesn't need to sell it. He, he just like what, what you guys were putting together. And uh, I, I think his only disappointment was the fact that when it came out, it was to a, a degree by the studio a little bit, mis, uh, anyways, kind of misrepresented what it was. And people didn't know quite what to expect. And But, I mean, he's, he's you know, over the years, he's gotten a lot of, um, he's had access to some of the fans and, you know, people, fan mail. You know, he doesn't get out there to... The, the sci-fi conventions, but he's seen the websites and those stuff. It gives him a kick, you know. I think didn't I? I heard that he actually will jump on those in those chat rooms and uh, yeah, banter. The uh, there's there's an interesting paradox here. We're saying that Buck Roo is looking to uh, remain anonymous, be behind the scenes all the time, but somehow there are comic books about him, and he appears in rock and roll clubs, and he's hardly. Uh, anonymous. I, I mean, I guess I have to say that if you've been to one of his concerts, you kind of do know what he looks like. But uh, that would be a limited number of people because they're not big concerts. And uh, I'm going to—I have to turn over to Reno the question of, of how it is to live in that world, uh, that that tension between nobody knows what I look like and yet I'm famous. Well, it's an interesting question. I, I think he he doesn't uh, crave the publicity. Uh, he craves what he does. And along with that, you know, there's a certain amount, anyway, a certain amount of notoriety, of publicity. But he, he's not, you know, the man has so many diverse interests, so much going on with him, that if, if he sought publicity, it would just detract from so many of the things that he's doing. You know, I mean, he doesn't want to get up there and, and, you know, be bigger than the president or, you know, speak for the world or go to the United Nations. I mean, that's an, it's a trip he's not on. He's not on that trip. He takes delight, however, in, in solving problems. The man's a scientist. So you're seeing us squirm here trying to answer these questions, and I think that's why he stays out of the limelight. It's just possible that he's a little too uh, complex to bother to try to encapsulate in a paragraph true. or two. True, that's true. I, mean, I think he tro totally actually despises the whole celebrity aspect of the culture. You're seeing a black Lectroid here, uh, one of the good guys. And uh, they're called Lectroids because uh, their primary source of nourishment is electricity. I can't answer whether they call themselves Lectroids or whether, you know, Robins don't call themselves Robins. That may be a name we've given them, but it was the name I was given by the Institute, uh, and it made sense. Um, it certainly has a little punch, nice two-syllable sound. Um, one thing that's fascinated the fans is sort of kind of a slight uh, second banana to the watermelon is the famous pink box that John Parker takes out of that crashed thermopod and uh, brings to the Institute and uh, delivers to Pinky Carruthers, a complete coincidence that his name is Pinky Carruthers. Uh, what it's supposed to contain is a sweet potato pie. Um, 
homemade sweet potato pie that uh, he could carry through the streets. And uh, if somebody stopped him and said, what's in the pink box? He'd say a sweet potato pie because it was obviously something that uh, nobody but Buckaroo and his closest circle should see. I have learned that it's kind of <clears throat> a little icon from the movie and that fans bring pink cake boxes to screenings of the movie. That's fun. I'm glad they do. I'm getting a lot of static here. Yeah, that's me. I've been ionized, but I'm okay now. Listen, I'm, I'm switching on the homing beacon. Mark two-minute intervals now. Look, uh, we got the overthruster, but somebody shanghaied the professor right from the press conference. Oh, the deuce, you say. What do you think? Dr. Lazardo, maybe? The crate. There are a lot of wonderful props in this movie. And um, our prop man, Eric, uh, oh God, this is awful. I'll have to get this right. Uh, really contributed so much to the design of the movie. You think that's a production designer's responsibility, but Eric would walk in. Eric, Eric Nelson? I think Eric Nelson would walk in with these contraptions that were maybe slightly referenced in the script and they were gnarly and weird and uh, they were all really special things. Uh, he has he created the device that comes up later that uh, the little document the president reads, a declaration of war, the short form. Um, that's the kind of spirit this movie was made under or in <clears throat> where uh, everybody kind of felt pushed, you know, do something in your area that kind of crosses out of your area, like, that's writing. I mean, that's that's a line, and yeah, there you know, it was. Buckaroo, you know, I think uh, he has a funny thing about movies. He likes movies, and his his whole philosophy is he likes things that seem improvised, because if it seems improvised, it seems real, and that is a reflection, possibly, of good of good writing, you know. As if it's improvised, it looks improvised, but actually it's, it's well-written. You know? Well, it, if you have an ear... You have to fragment sentences, crack them apart. We talk almost incoherently. If you read a transcript of oh, an Inquisition or a courtroom uh, transcript, you you understand what the person's saying, but if you look at the structure of the sentence, it's just madness. And that's an interesting way language works. And uh, I felt that in the script that uh, Earl MacRoush wrote, and I don't know if it came from him or it came from you, Reno, or... I mean, you made it up, or you just have an incredible and you remember what these guys actually said. Repeating, interstate outward band five. Coded, calling all blue blaze irregulars in the Garden State. Buckaroo, intro. We'll repeat coordinates. This is Scooter Lindley, junior blue blaze irregular, 41 and a half. Hang on. They're the, the secret weapon. Uh, you know, the Cavaliers can only do so much, and uh, they never know uh, what kind of resources they're going to need when they wind up um, in some strange part of the globe or the country. And uh, the Blue Blazer regulars, I don't know how many there are. I don't know if Buckaroo really knows either. It's not something he's, he would sort of obsess about, but, man, he's, they've never come up short. Whoever it was on that phony phone call from the president gave me information. It's some, some electrochemical message that allows me to see what they really are. What are they? Luck choice from Planet 10 by way of the 8th dimension. Mr. Gomez? We've got a truck on the way to help mop things up. Identification? Else this place become a zoo, not to mention a haven for gawkers. Wait a minute. Now, just a second. 
Stay put. All of you. Sure thing. We'll just go ahead and start breaking it down. Don't touch it! I got my own help on the way. Now, that's an order. We'll find something to crack it open. There's a Harley in those bushes. I want you to get on it, go back to the laboratory, start working on this formula. I want you to synthesize it. Bakaru, give me the formula. I remember then during the time the movies come in, I hate to speak over the, the scene here, but uh, I'm uh, in India and I, I'm seeing a movie in India and I get home and a lot of people have not seen the movie in this country. It, it's been hard, that, <laughs> that hard to find the movie. And, uh, How do we do in India? Yeah, well, people, uh, you know, it was a big smash. There's a lot of people like the movie. Anywhere you go in the world today, there's people that, uh, that well, I mean, everybody wants to see anything about Bakaru Banzai, but... Um, you're right about the fan base. It's, it's totally unpredictable. I lived in Gloucester, Massachusetts for a while and had a septic system in my front yard, and these guys came to pump it out. The big septic truck comes, the hose goes in, and we're standing around. I was looking into the hole because I'd never seen a septic system, and one of the guys said, so you wrote Buck Rubanzai? And I said, no, no, I didn't write it. A friend of mine did. I directed it. And they said, well, we call ourselves Team Banzai back at the uh, septic office. So... Uh, I will forget that moment. I don't know what it means, but it was kind of rewarding. Detonator set. My most profuse apologies to my homeland and loved ones. John Baluk is dead. He fell on his head. Perhaps John Parker will get through with our message to Buckaroo Banzai. I said back off! Now, damn it, I mean it! Hey! Hey, leave him alone! Easy, friend. <laughs> Buckaroo Banzai. Hey! He's Buckaroo Banzai! Get him! The question's asked a lot uh, about w what nerve does this touch in in this many, many different kinds of people who call themselves, you know, Blue Blazer regulars or the fans of Buckaroo Banzai. I, I just look back at the whole thing and say, it says something about uh, people working together, uh, finding a kind of a rhythm in their lives that uh, allows them to help each other and bring the best out of each other. And I think secretly that's what we'd all like to walk into every morning, whether we're going to an office or a movie studio or a car dealership or a septic pumping company. You just want to walk in and feel like everybody's your buddy and everybody's working as a team to, you know, have a good time and get the job done. And that's what Buckaroo stands for. There's no bitterness or anger or prejudice or anything like that in the man. And it's encouraging to me that people are hmm. getting excited about that. I mean, I've seen so many wonderful stories. People show up at the Institute. Uh, a guy might be a plumber on the outside. 
but all his life he's wanted to be part of the you know the Bakuru Banzai team or he's wanted to make music or be a painter or whatever and you know it changes lives I've seen so many lives changed and I've seen the world change um, the thing is with them with the Bakuru Institute it tells you you can be whatever you want to be I mean obviously I'm not from Memphis Tennessee you can tell by my accent I'm not from Memphis I mean I like to be from Memphis, but that's why I chose my name, Reno, Memphis, you know. But you can become something more than you are. And I think if you put your heart and soul into it, you can you can change the world. Hey, buddy. Can I help you? Hello! Bokaroo Banzai? You a messenger? What you got here? No, no, wait a minute. I need to see Bokaroo Banzai in person. My name is John Parker. Identify yourself, no? Blue Blazer regular, Pinky Carruthers. Sorry, John, everybody needs C. Buckaroo. Later. Gino, run this down to the professor for me. Sounds like he's getting a little nervous. This is clear, look. What's that, what do you got? All these people applied for social security cards in the same town in New Jersey, on the exact same date. New Jersey? 46 Yo-Yo Dine employees, Grover's Mills, New Jersey, 11-1-38. I got some pictures, boys. Looks like a practical joke. Check out these names. John Yaya, John Perry. Now we're into an interesting area here. Uh, why all the Johns? Um, I ha- had assumed that it was sort of like Mr. Uh, just coincidentally was a sound that we were comfortable with, and also that it, since the electroids realized it was one of the most common names uh, in America, they somewhat naively assumed nobody would, would look... Um, well, I guess nobody did notice that everybody there was named John until, until uh, Buckaroo and the Cavaliers got involved, and they just... Uh, and then the last names. Uh, you know, I don't know what to say about them. They, some of them are absurd, others are so straightforward. Uh, is that a reflection of the Electroids misunderstanding what was funny to the American ear, or is it Mac Rauch, or is it yeah, you, Reno, playing yeah. with us? No, this isn't, uh, you know, it had nothing to do with me. I, I then it's, it's Rauch? Oh, Mac Rauch, because, uh, <laughs> you know, my screenwriters got to invent. They got to do what they got to do. Yeah, he has he has a, a, a hyper-lively imagination, and, uh, you know, <laughs> you could just do Mac's stuff, because uh, it's good. New Jersey. Mac had come to um, Los Angeles to try to be a screenwriter because I stumbled across a book he'd written while he was in college, and it was called Arkansas Adios, and it was a wonderful piece of writing, and I tracked him down through his publisher, and he wasn't doing anything that um, particularly satisfied him in Texas, and I lured him to California with uh, the promise of riches, and uh, he showed up one day, and early on in our relationship just told me and my wife Susan one night over dinner that he had a story about a guy named Buckaroo Bandy and he he wanted to kind of write it and told us a little bit about it. He did not say it was based on a real person. And we said, uh, it's like a serial, you know, it's felt kind of goofy and funny and uh, we gave him a little bit of money and said, because we had a fledgling production company at that time and said, go ahead, write it. And Mac would go away and come back with 30 pages, come back with 20 pages we would make comments. He'd revise it by throwing out all the pages and coming in with 40 new ones. And character names began to appear, come and go. And one day, Buckaroo Bandy turned into Buckaroo Banzai. 
And he said something like, ah, it's probably a stupid idea. And we said, oh, don't you dare throw that name out. And the guy never, ever, I think he set us up. I think he knew that we would be seduced by that name, and he attempted to take it away from us, and we wouldn't let him. So um, I'm, I'm known on Mike Rouse since early on, and he, he wants to do Buckaroo Banzai. And I say, you know, who are you to do Buckaroo Banzai? And so he, he says, well, I know Rick and, you know, I like to talk about it. And I said, well, you can't use the name Buckaroo Banzai. But you're saying at some point Buckaroo was okay with uh, Max using the real name? Yeah, he used the real name. Um, the, the question, he, he, Buckaroo wants to see the movie, wants to see the script. He wants to know that, it's, you know, it's not going to make him, you know, look foolish or something. There you have Chris Lloyd wearing his Electroid makeup and Vincent Schiavelli and Dan Hedaya there on the left. Uh, a dangerous collection of actors. This, this Electroid makeup um, evolved, uh, oh gosh, over at least a six or seven month period uh, based on conversations with Mike Riva about, again, uh, sea life. Uh, they're based on lobsters, and that little spine that runs from the nose over the top of the head's an inverted lobster tail. And we then did a lot of uh, fooling around with war paint and ultimately stripped the war paint away but left feathers and other you know, idiosyncratic um, dress on these guys so they could express themselves. Oh, watch Lewis Smith in the middle there during this. He almost loses it. Laughs. Orson Welles into covering it up. So first he says there's an invasion from Mars, but then he says, no, 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 it's just a radio show hoax. Get it? No. Let's go. Orson Welles. What about yo yo dying? What about Dr. Lazardo? It's a tiny moment, but that's an actor falling out of character in the face of Goldblum in those lines. We're now inside a house uh, designed by uh, Cedric Gibbons, the uh, famous production designer from the 30s and 40s, I think. It was his home, and it was kind of cutting-edge modern for the time and was our second choice after the Gamble House in Pasadena, which was all wood and warmer, two extremes. And I think Buckaroo's at home in either one of those things. Uh, there's some great stuff scribbled on that plexiglass board, Minkowski space, a lot of uh, relevant concepts uh, that all play into the notion of manipulating space. This is Rosalind Cash, a really nice actress who unfortunately passed away. She's standing there in a dress designed by Aggie Rogers, the costume designer, that weighed like a suit of armor. It is metal, and she could barely move in it, uh, designed to kick light off and to make it sort of uh, have a weight of its own. I think Aggie, it was overkill, but it was great overkill. And here's an Eric Nelson touch, these masks cut out of bubble wrap. Um, they're somehow right. They're just, you don't need to to go any further, because whatever they really had and what they were really looking through is completely beyond us. I have no idea what kind of glasses came from Planet 10 in that box. I looked in her room, she wasn't there. Who's Penny? Well, where is she? Well, everybody please shut up so I can hear the rest of this thing. Now you, Buckaroo Buns, I have unintentionally helped John Corfin with the success of your oscillation over Trusta. You know, I, I neglect to tell you something, you know, at the rap party, there were a couple of us at the rap party. Get out of here. No, I'm totally, totally serious. And I, I'm dancing with Rosalind at the rap party. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> she never knew. 
Did she know? She never knew. She never knew. Oh, I see. A sweet lady. She's a sexy lady too. She did a lot of, a lot of good films. Yeah. And there's a lot, lot going on on this, uh, in this scene on this shot. She basically stood in a revolving light so that there would be that action on her face. But the lights turning in front of you are put in after an awful lot of early special effects uh, manipulating this, uh, and obviously there. Points of simultaneity. You know, this man's a jazz singer, too. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty good jazz singer. Yeah. Um, A a question people ask, uh, all right, so you've got red electroids and black electroids. Well, you don't have red Indians. You have just some kind of red alien. Why do you have such a specific black electroid? Um, I really don't have a fast answer for that. Uh, Maybe... It's factual, I think, Reno. Well, I, I think in a movie you gotta make some shorthand. You gotta have recognizable, you know, characteristics for these people, the people, creatures, whatever you want to call them, on their own world. Um, you know, they can tell each other. You don't need colors. You know, they know who each other are. Um, it's it's the shorthand for the movies. You know, for the movies, people can see, okay, that's one side, that's another side. They wear uniforms. It's like a uniform. You know. We uh, don't have left in the movie um, the the complexity of this relationship you're seeing right now. Uh, I can't say that it it was complexity about their interpersonal relationship, but much more about who Hanoi Shan was and how he had affected Penny's life because, uh, well, the, the rumor is that Hanoi Shan killed her sister trying to kill Buckaroo, and he certainly killed Buckaroo's mother and father, so these two people who uh, are clearly attracted to each other sexually are, um, or they share a, a very twisted destiny. The same yeah. evil force has screwed up both of their lives. Yeah, it ain't no rumor either. I mean, it isn't? Shan killed, killed Peggy and he killed Penny. I mean, it's going to be in the next book coming, coming along. Oh, but, my God. Uh, he killed Penny in a terrible way. Ooh. He's, I mean, I could tell you, I mean, I don't want to... He, he strangled her with her own hair. Pers- he personally killed her? Yeah. I think at he the, did that sort of stuff. At the Church of the of the Dead in, uh, in Czechoslovakia. The church there made of human skulls, and he... Now I could tell you a story about it. So save it for later. dead. Spread out. They can't be very far off. Okay, Tommy, check the biomedical labs. Reno, you take the physics wing. Jersey, go with Reno. Where are you going? Engineering. Yeah, boy. Hold the gun in front of me. Oh, I see. Okay, That's cool. Okay. Let me catch my breath. 
professor went down into the purification vent. He's got the overthrust. Another thing about Shan, I mean, Shan can appear as different things. Oh, here's the watermelon. Yeah, oh. the, Hanoi Shan could be that watermelon. Um, the watermelon, from my point of view, is there because we had uh, just decided to take a confrontational posture in the face of David Beagleman, who who really felt that uh, uh, that we were out of control. And at some point, we speculated, stopped even looking at our dailies because he had stopped riding hard on us. And we thought, there's one way to find out if we're right about that, we'll just take a scene that has no reference to a watermelon and s stick a watermelon in a vice that was uh, in the factory we were using. I'd seen some watermelons being sold on the street as we were um, driving by on the way to the set, and uh, Mike Reba went and got them, and we did this. And, and, and that just confirmed it for us. They'd given up on us, and we then could take any kind of risks we wanted as long as we stayed on budget and on schedule. They had just sort of said, you know, We'll get them when they try to release this sucker. for these things? No, not at all. Does that mean you're on our side? That's right. Carl Lumley here playing John Parker. Uh, just another wonderful actor who uh, gave us little nuanced physical movements that uh, the way Parker runs, the way his head twitches, the way his hands bend. Um, just a gift from an actor. A lot of people, uh, you know, story of Rawhide, you know, um, you can't get into it in, in, in the movie here, but, you know, Rawhide uh, is still with us, you know. I mean, he's not himself, but he's still... I had, I had heard that. We're waiting for the moment, you know. You mean maybe a, a medical breakthrough? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's on ice, but, uh, you know, he'll, he'll be back. Well, that's a neat thought. shrouded in secrecy. Now, all I'm saying is that this jet car belongs in the People have asked about this. Um, 
I'm just going to say what it is. The president had a, a, a really wicked rectal operation, and um, that is the way he had to recover. Um, this is a, a real medical device. This is not something that was built for this, the movie. Um, and, uh, you know, I find it fascinating. I, you know, it looks, it looks like something out of Buckaroo's world because Buckaroo's world walks that line between, you know. Yeah, what, I think it's one of our inventions. I think. Now, here's an interesting actor. Yakov Smirnov just rolled that television set in. He's in this movie because Mac Roush said to me, I saw this real funny Russian comedian. We ought to use him in the movie. Well, that's enough. Let's use him. Where do we use him? Kindly and my national security advisor, Smirnov, are visiting me, but uh, I have no secrets from them. Well, something has reared its ugly head in outer space, Mr. President, and it looks like the Earth has caught a crossfire. But we have reason to believe that there are vicious red We also have totally looped uh, Ron Lacey, the uh, actor playing the president, because Beagleman said, I can't understand him. And well, Ron was doing uh, Citizen Kane here. I think you can kind of see Orson Welles hanging upside down there. And uh, I was forced, you know, to to have him looped, and if I didn't, they would. So I I stuck around to make sure I could get it, you know, as good as could be, but it's not Ron's performance. It was really neat. Explosive? What are you saying, man? Some kind of race war in New Jersey? Oh, Matt Clark is playing the Secretary of Defense here. Uh, a character, more than a character actor, but an actor who's had a wonderful career all over the movies. And again, um, our first choice for that role. And... And he's, and he's walking a fine line there between uh, being ludicrous and being the Secretary of State, or Defense, excuse me. There are the, the glasses. I think if you go back and count, there are three times in the movie. ...to our brain cells tells us to see exactly what they want us to see. Electric brainwashing. Diabolical, they got us so confused. Well, Garou, I, uh, I don't know what to say. Electroids, Planet 10... Nuclear extortion. A girl named John. Buckaroo. Black Sword Wing Commander. Excuse me, Mr. President, I have to go talk to the... Uh, there's a rumor going around that uh, it's not a rectal operation that's put the president in that contraption, that he was spineless. Uh, I think that's just unfounded. Uh, you know, the guy had a medical problem, he confronted it, and he's getting over it. Oh, he was shot in the ass, maybe. Ooh. Notice the rearview mirrors. Now, that does not come as standard equipment on that contraption. That's Eric Nelson again. Eric's a madman. Yeah, <laughs> really is, disguised as a property master. Buckaroo. It's working. Yes, uh, this is uh, Emilio Lizardo. Maybe you don't remember me. Ah, I'm flattered. Uh, we know the same people. Yeah, in fact, one of them is with me right now, your associate, uh, Dr. Penny. Doctor? Now here we're in, uh, I think, Firestone Tire and Rubber. Uh, we shot most of the yo-yo dine scenes in that building. It was freshly closed down, gone out of business. So we were handed an awful lot of wonderful uh, set dressing. And we just made the most of it. It was a pretty decrepit place. Claims to be unable to solve my problem and provide me with the crucial missing circuit for my overthrust. Yes, yes, Maybe you can convince her to try. John O'Connor. You know, 
John Lithgow's stuff was, I don't want to say shot in chronological order, but uh, kind of close together. And so he just sort of unleashed this character on the set, and it was entertainment uh, for about two weeks straight. I, I remember not being able to direct him because I was just trying to laugh, trying not to laugh. Uh, if you've never seen this and you're standing there and it's happening right in front of you, it's an amazing thing. He's a big guy, too. Man. He's oh. six, 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 five. He's gigantic. And the hair throws another couple inches on him. Use more honey. Find out what she knows. These breathing devices, Akita-san has cooked up. You know, everybody in this movie is pushing the character into slight caricature. And um, Lithgow is obviously out there farther than anybody else, but I think he fits into the movie. I think he's not just sort of like a a beacon of, of uh, you know, scene-chewing performance. I really feel that he fits into this, but he had to be larger than life, so we let him go. And maybe he could have been pulled back, but I don't think there'd be much point to it. He still has the overthruster, but this psycho warfin doesn't know that. So that'll be my job, to get her and it back in one piece. You're yeah, like in, a, in a sense, I mean, Buckler's got to be like the straight guy. Good point. To everything going on. That's you, Reno. Chaparral group, that's you. Perfect timing. John Parker, you'll ride with Chaparral. It's my guess that no human being has ever been inside the place. So who knows what we're going to find there. Top priority is the overthruster. Without it, Warfin can't get off this planet. This homing device will probably make it very easy to find. It may be a lot harder to get back. Strategic Space Command now reports all the surve surveillance satellite communication jammed. Jammed? By who? Who by? Uh, possible atmospheric conditions, sir. Solar. Solar? Intelligence confirms that Soviets are having the same problem. Uh, should we be on Code Red? We go to Code Red, the Russians go to Code Red. No sense going off half-cock, Mr. President. I don't know, but Buckaroo Banzai has never been wrong before. The man's been through solid matter, for crying out loud. Who knows what's happened to his brain? Maybe it scrambled his molecules. All I'm saying is, Mr. President... People have wondered about the uh, Panavision uh, format that we used here in this film and said, well, you're just going for a, a large, big movie effect. I don't recall whether that decision was something that was forced on me by the marketing department saying, you know, you got an action-adventure film here, we have to be able to throw it wide across the screen. I find it a difficult format to compose for and um, certainly looking down the road the immediate future was it was going to be on a video cassette and it wasn't going to have that format and uh, it's kind of unnerving what's not in what's not in that first VHS tape General and pull yourself together I'm glad someone has the balls to face facts don't embarrass us have I ever Give me 30 minutes, then come in and mop up. I was a little disappointed that, you know, my character, I mean, uh, Pepe, as, as Reno, wasn't... He didn't quite have enough lines. I, I talked to Roush, and I said, come, you know, Reno's kind of... Because in reality, I mean, he's, he's much more outgoing guy, you know. Well, you ought to know. Yeah. That's okay, I mean, I, it's a movie, you know. I've had enough of you, Penny Pretty! 
Johnson, thank you. It's certainly food for thought. No answer to Kremlin, sir. Just dead silence. Then I guess the moment... Now we're coming to another Eric Nelson bit right here. Presidential emergency action document. For your eyes only. John Hancock, these, and Hail Mary. You know, on second thought, maybe we should think this through a bit more so that future generations of Americans can... Oh, wow. Declaration of War. The short form. speech he's great this is based a little bit on Mussolini and uh, it's Lithgow's idea to do that it's fantastic interpretation <laughs> these little moves he made were sort of sprung on us and I'm standing down here laughing uh, just thrilled to be getting this it's scripted but um, you can't write you know, and you'll tuck your chin in and, you know, and purse your lips and spin your eyes around. That just is handed to you. But I think that the writing encourages that. I think the context gives the actor a sense of direction, and um, good ones really go with it. Now, the Shock Tower, uh, that's really not the name of it. Um, I had to come up with some name, and I was uh, in a BMW dealership having my old BMW worked on, and we were sh in pre-production, and uh, I was in the waiting room reading a magazine, and the guy came out and delivered the verdict, and he said, you need a new Shock Tower. And I thought, aha, that's what we'll call that thing. Because we didn't have names for everything. We weren't told what, you know, what anybody called anything. It's just... Strange science. Do you realize what you're saying? Your whole planet is going to be destroyed and you sit here wasting time. Time? I got nothing but time. Sealed with a curse as sharp as a knife. Doomed is your soul and damned is your life. 
Look at this styrofoam cup spinning around there. Mm. Mike Riva. More power to him. Also a book on the table, and I, I can't read the title, but I'm sure it was carefully chosen. Men of Earth, I believe it is. This helicopter was the only one we had, and it's doing double duty. It's the one that Casper uh, Lindley flew to save Buckaroo. Now the Secretary of Defense is coming down in it. I think that's uh, that's the budget pushing us around. Who the hell are the, the rug suckers? Well, uh, a lot happens while you're making a movie. We were driving around looking at locations, and a van roared by us, and it was a carpet cleaning, cleaning company, and they called themselves the rug suckers, and we thought we're not losing that one either, so... Paint that on the van and bring him in. Porco Judah! Hey, Banazai. Take a look at your girlfriend. Devo lavorare con persone, idiota! She'll live. But only for a while. You know, it's an interesting question. Uh, people ask, well, these guys got out of, these electroids got out of the eighth dimension in 1938. Uh, how do they spend their days? Well, they've basically built uh, Yoyodyne propulsion systems, which is a major supplier to the government of uh, weaponry. And they are able to use the facility uh, behind closed doors when they're building a bomber for the government. They're siphoning off some money in a typical cost overrun to try to perfect an, op an oscillation overthruster. Because what they want to do is get back into the eighth dimension and come out the other side of it and land on planet 10. The journey from Earth to planet 10 is just something they can't fathom trying to uh, accomplish. There's an interesting signage scattered all around here. Uh, it says an excited growing company. Um, just look in the corners, you'll see funny stuff. So the electroids basically have uh, kind of ineptly put in 40 or 50 years trying to perfect this overthruster, which is why when Banzai himself goes through solid matter and Lazardo's sitting there in the madhouse and he sees that somebody has an oscillation overthruster that will allow him to get into the eighth dimension and out again, uh, he breaks out and the movie's off and running because that's really how it started. If, if Banzai had not figured out how to do that, then I don't think Lazardo would have escaped. A couple of years ago, Thomas Pinchon, you know, the writer, was someone asked him, uh, what about someone, the, the movie took Yo-Yo down from one of your books. And Pinchon says, no, nah, he got it backwards because Yo-Yo Dine, you know, he took Yo-Yo Dine. He took the name from the, the corporation, but it doesn't matter, you know. I love this set. I, I believe it completely, even standing in it. It didn't feel like it was uh, put together by a production designer. But look around. There's a pair of socks hanging there. It's hard, hard to believe it. Riva is like the son of Marlena Dietrich. He's, yeah. grand, he's a grandson. Grandson. Grandson, yeah. That's right. That's yeah, he right. Is. his mom is, is Marlena Dietrich's uh, daughter, and Mike is, yeah, is her absolutely. grandchild. Obviously a grandson. And Mike found this, found it in a novelty shop, brought it to the set, and um, it just seems right. To 
mean, they live like pigs. I mean, they're filthy. Yeah, look at this. This is like uh, a lounge or something. Now, apparently, uh, I was told this bit about the fire, that they always had them burning, but it wasn't clear to me whether they needed the heat or whether they just took comfort from the flames, you know. Or it's, it's just symbolic. I don't know what it is. I just did it because I had it on good word that that's yeah, what it looked like. reminds them of home. Yeah. Um, few lines in the movie there. <laughs> I mean, Pepe's a cool, Pepe's a cool, cool fella. Well, now you make me feel real guilty, but Roush is not here to take the heat because I shot his script, so, you know. Notice the piles of yellow, I don't know, pigment on the ground. What's happening? John Isaac and the boy, the big booty. Go down to the pit. Kill the girl! Here's an interesting moment. This way. Now that's a dubbed line because Buckaroo initially said, I don't know when asked, where are we going? Or actually I think it's when he said, where are we? Uh, but whatever, the moment has been changed because Beagleman said, again, I will not let you have a hero who's indecisive. When asked a direct question in a situation that has any jeopardy, he has an answer. So there was a, just a general sense of don't let any idiosyncratic humanity sneak into this thing. You know, just crank it out. We, we actually won more battles than we lost. Part of that ship is, is a matte painting, uh, but something fairly large was hanging there. I think the bottom half of it was hanging there with all the tentacles, and it did go down that track, but not the whole contraption. 
there's a lot of use of loudness and softness in this sequence. You know, when we sucked the sound out of that corridor of plastic, the Secretary of Defense walked through. It came right after some really raucous stuff. Hey, I don't give a flying handshake. What's your name? It's clear here that uh, there's a connection between the defense industry and the Secretary of Defense because these guys did a lot of defense work. Yeah, he really thought they were building a truncheon bomber. Uh, and they were so close to, you know, with that new overthrust, they're breaking out that they just basically shamelessly put the big contraption right in the main hangar facility, and he just saw it. It's like a damn I got a damn planet. Understand, monkey boy? Let's get out of here, John O'Connor. But John Warfin said we could kill her. Damn John Warfin and the horse he rode it on! The people have said, um, what the heck would happen if this scene ran on for another two minutes? Um, I, th I think it has something to do with eyeballs, but uh, again, I'm kept half in the dark, and they just say, you know, you got enough to shoot, shoot. You owe me one, bud. It's not over yet. You make me down, but I'm not out. What is that? Don't pick it up. No. What's she doing? Uh, I don't know. There's no overthrust. Papa Robot's eye. What? There is little time. You better come quickly if your planet is still important to you. Leave her to me. You take care of business. Thanks. Go, go. One of the problems that I had to grapple with in this was the electroid's uh, ability to use uh, what's called electronic brainwashing to make people see them as human beings rather than what you're looking at right now. Um, th there is a concept here that, that's, a, that's in play in this scene, and that the Lizardo is walking around as himself because Warfin's using his body. These electroids on the left side and the right side have only alien bodies. I know I said a little earlier, I share everybody's confusion on this point, that they inhabited ordinary human beings and that's why they didn't have to have this kind of inner war going on. But I think the truth is closer to the fact that they, they walk around always in their alien uh, bodies and have the ability electronically to make people see them as they want them to see them. And uh, we had to go with a, a kind of careful dance there to say there would be moments when we would use the electroid masks to say they've dropped their guard. They're not trying to hide from the movie audience. They're trying to hide from uh, any Earthlings. And in that scene, there were no Earthlings. Uh, in this scene, it's a surprise to them that the Earthlings are in there. And they're sort of caught with their pants down and their um, electroid heads on. And I suppose they could brainwash Buckaroo, but certain things you just, you would drive the audience nuts, throwing human faces in and out of here. So the conceit is, right now, they're Electroids. The jig's up. They're clearly going somewhere. And boxing gloves. Look at the boxing gloves on that Electroid. And their plaid pants and polka dot shirts. We found a book about uh, ordinary Russians, an amazing collection of photographs of uh, Russian everyday wear. And uh, I guess it was probably from the 60s or 70s, probably the 70s. And their outfits are based on strange collections of plaids and polka dots and mismatched patterns. <laughs> 
bring back memories. Probably different ones for you. A little, a little bit. This is a great contraption Mike Reva found. I'm not sure. It's just like a big metal iris, and um, it's all used stuff. None of this has been built for the movie. See Warfin's little tribute to himself, or whoever would fly that would have to look at him while they're flying to be looks reminded. Like a, looks, like, looks like a treehouse. You know, I think people heard about a movie about Buckaroo Banzai, and they're thinking Indiana Jones, James Bond. I mean, he's he's the he's the king. You know, he's the king of action. And, and uh, Beagleman also probably thinking, oh, Buckaroo Banzai, I'm gonna make a you know billion dollars because he's like the most action guy there is. Um, but what turned Buckaroo onto this particular project, I think, was the irony and it was the comedy and the sort of stuff that make, makes uh, Buckaroo laugh, you know. So he he was comfortable with that and he didn't care, you know. He, he's got enough, uh, you know, he, he gets he gets enough stroke and he doesn't need a movie to paint him as the action hero, you know. I mean, this is some of that, but it's also about, you know, sensibility and he, he liked the movie. He liked the movie a lot. Well, I, I think the general public just shied away from it. Uh, and that was very disappointing to us because we initially weren't even aware that there was a f- big fan base building of people who were really, really uh, moved by it. I don't know what the right word is. So a lot of disappointment and a lot of a sense of, uh, you know, we tried something that was a little too too strange and we failed. But every year it got more interesting when the fan base kind of coalesced and they started newsletters and, and then the internet re- really let everything loose and... And now I'm thrilled to have made this movie because it's really obvious it made a lot of people happy. That that really means a lot to me. Well, you know, I mean, you've, I know you don't want to talk about him, but he's, he's, he's communicating with you. you know? Not in person, yeah. Well, but, you know, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. It's, oh, in ways I don't even know? Well, I'm telling you that he likes the movie, and, you know, you're going to talk to him. Well, I'm not, I'm not challenging I believe he does. He's really happy. I mean, he was he was upset with the way it was handled, you know, the movie, the, the release of the movie. But like you, I mean, like a lot of people. But as far as the the, the film, he's very very happy with it. I'd say about those outfits, those electrodes are strapping on. We came on the set one day when uh, the the art department was spraying the inside of the mothership. We saw that foam on it and the thermopod that was on the ground, and they were screwing around, fooling around with the extra foam and spraying it on. Uh, crummy wardrobes and you know jackets and things and hanging them off of ropes and it just looked wonderful so we turned that into the electroid sort of uh, flight suits By to incinerate Smolensk. This is Panther 1, Jettison, Jettison. So sorry, gentlemen, but I must dump the excess baggage. Arrivederci, Banazai! Power, power, where's the power? Where's the power? I'm a diplomat, a field flight school. What do we do, jump started?
we don't own this movie, so uh, we have to get permission of the current owner at any time to, say, uh, take it to a television production company, you know, like a network, and say, do you want to do a pilot? We can't do that without permission of the owner. And Polygram, for a brief period of time, owned it and said, yeah, try to do stuff with it. It didn't happen fast enough, and Polygram was consumed or just sort of folded into Universal. And Universal didn't do television the way they used to do it, so again, we were in limbo, and then one day MGM got it, and there's hope. As Penny says, you know, Buckaroo gives her hope to carry on. He's like Jerry Lewis. So I guess MGM is our Jerry Lewis. developed it with him, but Earl MacRoush wrote this thing, and um, two drafts, two very different drafts, one that's feature-length, although we tried not to make it feature-length, but it just had too much stuff going on in it to stay television size, and then one that was altered and slimmed down and um, could be a television pilot, and um, it's not over. I don't know what's going to happen exactly, but it's certainly not over. Yeah, I hope you guys do, you know, I hope it continues. I mean, there's a hundred stories, a hundred stories, and I'm not sure which one uh, you're thinking about doing, but uh, I know I sent over couple dozen uh, some of the files you know yeah I'm I'd have a hard time picking the first one um, it's not for want of material that you haven't seen sequels because I mean a sequel to this I mean we're talking about Lizardo which is basically Lizardo is like a second-rate villain you know he's 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 cool but I mean he's not Hanoi Shan you know and um, what happened in the end to Lizardo I mean that's still to be told you're looking at the best Lectroid makeup here. Tom Berman did this stuff and was able to apply some of it himself on the set early on, and that's what we've got here. But our budget prevented us from taking the time to do that kind of a first-rate job every day, so sometimes it barely looks passable to me, but there was no choice, no time and no money. Long journey there. It's going all the way back to Planet Ten. Yeah, they don't know. They don't know that uh, you know bits and pieces of Lazardo staying around, and so there's a second episode of this. The, the final battle has not yet uh, yet been fought. Yeah, because you know Lazardo crash landed in New Jersey. That ship did not explode, and. Um, there's been speculation about uh, where he's been hiding. Uh, and if three or four or five of those other electroids survived, whether they're um, somehow building a power base again in New Jersey. And we, we dealt with that a bit in the uh, pilot script, that they, uh, they're not gone. When you see an explosion, it doesn't mean he perished in it. You know, he's been through a lot of stuff, and uh, he took a hard bounce, I bet. I, I don't want to worry the people. I mean, right now, 19, what, 2001, he is gone. In terms of what the movie is saying, he's still a ways to go. I, I think again, a little double talk there. I think he's trying to tell you that Lazardo didn't die in the crash. No, he did not die. But I don't, I don't want to panic the people now thinking, well, it's still 2001, Lazardo's around someplace. I did all I could. Buckaroo, President's on line one, calling about is everything okay with the alien space cloud from Planet 10, or should he just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. 
Which was yes, destroy Russia or uh, number two? This was a tough scene to watch for some of us. It looks like the end of Buckaroo. He's replaying the awful moment when he found Peggy dead. Uh, this is a final goodbye. I don't think he understands what's inside him from that encounter with Electroids. Uh, the good ones are going to reward him here for what he's just done. The gift of life. I assume it's clear to people that the World Crime League is Hanoi Shan's front organization. Um, it appears to be a, uh, well, it, it's called WCL, World Capital Lending, or Limited, I'm not quite sure, and it has a public presence. But it, uh, it's something else entirely. Yeah, I was uh, driving down the street here, and there's a building not 10 blocks away from this, this World Crime League uh, front. They own a lot of real estate in a lot of places. Some of it's rented, I understand, you know, just purely for profit, but they're, they have their offices in, in very unlikely places. Well, we, we shot this ending basically because the movie seemed to be over too fast. There was just some rhythm missing. And David Beagleman said, well, why don't we have a musical number? I'll pay for it. And uh, it was an extraordinary gesture on his part after all we'd been through. I really don't know what motivated him, and, and uh, it wasn't a strange... I mean, it, it was a strange choice to do this, and he endorsed it. And he got us a choreographer uh, and let us just go full out. You know, there's certain conceits here that this is not the real group. These are the actors because there's Rawhide walking right in the middle of it. So you make of that what you will. Uh, it's just there are those belts, you know. Man's got style, you know. <laughs> I think he's redundant. I'm, I'm always find, I always find myself smiling when I see these people and read those names of everybody else behind the scenes because, except for the trouble given us by the studio, this was an incredible experience. Even though we didn't, you know, ever relax. You don't get these shots many times. 
And read these titles carefully. Richard Carter. Rick Carter is now a really, really prominent uh, production designer. Uh, there's Eric Nelson, our property master. Um, Bruce McBroon, a wonderful still photographer. R- really talented people. Michael Evier, production mixer, a funny guy and really good. It was a happy set, you know, really, really happy. Now, the movie had a real nice flavor, you know, just the flavor of the movie is just, you can't put your finger on one particular part of it, you know, it's just the flavor, it's, it's the world. The music is something that, uh, you know, uh, has, has its own twisted history. Mike Boddicker did it, created it all in a little studio, that he, a little electronic studio he had on Wilshire Boulevard in an unlikely kind of office building. It looked like an insurance company should be in there. And he wrote the score, and... Um, had a problem uh, getting um, a CD or a, a, I guess you'd say a tape at that time or a, even a, an LP release. So there really, uh, th- there doesn't exist uh, a real soundtrack album for this movie, primarily because uh, negotiations with record companies fell apart, uh, I think probably when too much money was asked for it. We got a couple of tours coming up, and there's always some new Buckaroo stuff out there. Man, I can't wait. (laughs) 